This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets, where Chris, this week, if you subscribe to the news feed, their letter they send you, which gives you uh, kind of a lowdown of what's going on in your local Zupan's, free daisies. Free? Who, who doesn't want free daisies at this time of year? You can never go wrong with free daisies. And you know, every week, whenever I go into Zupan's, I check my email to see what it was that week that or what it is. Yeah. Got free goat cheese, free pasta sauce. Free tuna. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's worthwhile to subscribe and shop at Zupans too. Mm, absolutely. Also, if you're reading the news feed, you'll see that there's the uh, the Zupans Dinners in the Breedsway at the Lake Grove store. Mm-hmm. And um, I got one that I can't believe isn't sold out as of this morning when I looked, which is a lobster and clam bake. Oh. for And so they're doing lobster, clams, and um, and shrimp. On May 26th, lobster and clam bake. Very nice. Hey, Court, do you have any things that you... I have some great things that I've discovered that every time I go to Zupans, I look for now. Well, I do know this. My wife has recently... She has... She's participating in this Whole30 way of eating. Mm -hmm. And we have found that Zupans is one of the best places to go to find the items that are part of that list. Like coconut aminos. Are you familiar with that? No. No, but I'll tell you this. Zupans has it. So if you're looking for those, if you're into Whole30, you know exactly what I'm talking about because apparently coconut aminos replaces- I'm into the Whole2. Right. Is it good? (laughs) Yes, eat it. I just had a couple of smoothies this morning. I'll take one of those. But uh, yeah, so coconut aminos or a lot of the things that you're finding that are kind of hard to find other places, you can find at Zupans. Fantastic. Three locations, West Burnside, McAdam, and of course, Lake Grove, which we've been talking about or online at zoopans.com. Hello and welcome to Right at the Fork. It is Portland's food scene podcast. And we're... Oh, uh, 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 hey, you know what? I think we need to go get lessons on how to do a podcast. We probably, you know, they have they have those um, conferences we could go to, spend a few grand, go in, and te- no. people will tell us how to get a, you know, few hundred more people to listen to our podcast. Mm, a few hundred, yes, we could use <laughs> we could use that, but I think we've done pretty well. It's all on about our scale. Own. No, I think we've done great. And, and of course, that voice right over there is uh, Chris Angeles, Portland Food Adventures. I'm Court Johnson, and uh, we've been doing this uh, some for some time now. We're going on four and a half over years, four, yeah. man. Never would have thought it. But it's been a fast four and a half years. It has been. And and a fun one. It it has been a fun one. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, because we're coming at this from from different angles. You're coming at it from a guy who's about to head out to Europe this fall. Oh, yeah. Well, we love the food. We love the food experiences. So uh, jump on PortlandFoodAdventures.com. Check out our trip with Jose Chesa to Barcelona, our fourth. Also, we have a few spots left to go to Sicily for 10 days with my uh, dear friend, Austri Ensign, and uh, that's an incre- that is a wonderful trip. Check out, by the way, check out the uh, new episodes, all the pastry chefs on, on um, Chef's Table okay. on Netflix, because one of them is, uh, is a spot, Cafe Siciliana, or Sicilia, Cafe Sicilia that we're going to be going to. Oh, and, very cool. Uh, it's pretty cool. And also Mexico City with uh, David from Chocolato de David um, in for Day of the Dead. 
Uh, that's a great trip. Check that out. Also, I got some local events coming up that I want to mention because you should go. They're great spots. Right. We're going to Enoteca Nostrana to get a full uh, complement of dishes from Devin Chase, the new chef there. And, of course, Austin Morris Bridges will be uh, doing the wine pairings for us there. And then also new chef in town, Jeff Larson at Tanner Creek Tavern. So we're going we're gonna to get to see what he was doing down in Napa Valley. Very cool. Um, and Tanner Creek Tavern is a pretty pretty nice David Machado restaurant. We have yeah. two David Machado episodes on this podcast, mm-hmm. so you can go back and listen to. But that really is, that's housekeeping. PortlandFoodAdventures.com is Thanks. also where you get the details on the trips as well as the local events here in Portland. Right, and they're all related because we're all interested in, in the food scene and experiences and backgrounds and Today we have a really special guest. We do. This is a this was a great interview. The time just flew by, oh, and my. and I am going to tell. I'm going to do this right here. I don't want to ruin anything, but you asked the question towards the end of this podcast, and I'm going to answer it in the intro, so people are going to have to listen. But yes, Chris, you were correct about the Hartford <laughs> Current. However, there is a bit of a controversy between the New Hampshire Gazette. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Now people have to listen to the podcast to realize what we're talking about. I, I just love that because that goes on record as uh, my being correct about something. Yeah, you were correct so, about the Hartford Current. Yeah, the Hartford Current. So yeah. great. And and the reason we were talking, we got into discussion on the Hartford Current is uh, is Brooke Jackson Glidden, uh, the new editor of Eater, mm-hmm. who is just a ball of energy, man. We could have kept going forever. Yeah. And knows a lot, but she has a journalism uh, background that started, what did she say, six or seven, That when she really wanted to do this? She had a desire to be to get into the food journalism world at six years old. Right. So not Man. only that, she based her decision on where to go to college, where they had a food bent no. So in, in journalism. So it wasn't just journalism, it had to be food. Food. So, um, and you can see where that's gone. She's young. I didn't ask her how old she was. But if you do all the math and you deduce, she's still yeah. in her 20s. Right. So, um, and a lot of knowledge. I can't imagine my being able to have, be interviewed at 20 about anything, in my 20s, about sure. anything. Right. And sound and, like her. And talk about it as passionately <laughs> as she did. And, and it, oh, yeah. And articulately. I can barely do it at 40. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I just I was kind of just sitting back and and listening. You throw, you throw her a, a lob and she hits it. Mm-hmm. So... Um, but Eater, uh, if you aren't aware, um, Eater is the, so, well, I'm going to say one of the primary sources all over the country for food information in certain cities. They run maps uh, on the best places to go, and they're also the uh, place where you get information on new openings, some new things going on at restaurants. And if you're into the food scenes at all, or if you want to be in food scene, it's actually imperative that you add Eater PDX to your viewing world, mm-hmm. and uh, and you'll see a lot from Brooke Jackson Glidden. So she's the editor. She writes a lot of the articles, but she's also editing articles that other folks write, like uh, Alex Frain, who will be on this podcast as well, and there are a few others. But uh, uh, Eater's always been an is is an important part of the Portland food world, and so it was a real honor and privilege to have Brooke talking about what she does, why she does it, how she does it, and what she's thinking behind mm-hmm. the articles. Right at the Fork is proud to be supported by Zupan's Markets. 
For over 40 years, unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to the freshest baked goods, flowers, and more, with a delicious emphasis on locally sourced items. The best of the Northwest Bounty can be found at your closest Zoo Pants, on West Burnside, McAdam, or Lake Grove, and at ZooPants.com. Eat well, put taste first, love your food. Ringside Hospitality Group. Owned by the Peterson family for nearly 75 years, Ringside Steakhouse has long been a landmark of the Portland landscape. And Ringside Fish House, in the heart of downtown, boasts the freshest seafood and an exceptional wine list. Both serve the world-famous onion rings that James Beard claimed to be the best he's ever had. Visit ringsidesteakhouse.com and ringsidefishhouse.com and make a reservation today. Join right at the Four Coast Chris Angeles for once-in-a-lifetime trips this fall to eat and sip your way through Sicily, Mexico City, and PFA's famous trip with Italo chef Jose Chesa to Barcelona. See the exciting itineraries at portlandfoodadventures.com and find Chris's contact information there too. If you love food and travel, these trips are for you. And make sure to check in on local PFA events. And by San Pellegrino. Iconic, fresh, sparkling water with extraordinary Italian heritage is a refreshing way to enhance any dining experience. Ask for San Pellegrino by name next time you're having a great meal. Ever since its founding in 1899, San Pellegrino has been a premium brand synonymous with style. The two of us were collectively um, four hours from here two hours ago. Yes, exactly. If you exactly. add the man hours it took us to get here to do this. <laughs> right. Court, how long did it take you to get here to do this? Uh, I drove, it maybe took me 25, 30 minutes. Okay. Yeah. That's a reasonable mm. amount of time. Yeah. There, there was a lot of work to get here. So, yeah. And you know, for a while, you were just coming up to Portland as recreation. Yeah. It was, uh, it's sort of funny. I also got the job before I had a place here. So I was couch surfing and down in Salem and up here and my boyfriend lives in St. John's and then my friend lives in Foster Powell so I'm just I've been driving a lot and do you have a place now yes I am just a few blocks from Ox which is dangerous. oh that's that's yeah. really dangerous <laughs> yeah. and you got some what else is around there well, well not too far from Ned Ludd too you go the other right. go that way and um there's a I'm pretty close to Alberta I'm um Right by that bunk bar over there. Mm-hmm. There's there's a good amount of stuff around there. I can walk to Mississippi. Was I, that the criteria for finding a place, or it, did you just? It was on the radar. I, I like because to, you you obviously. I'm sorry. You yeah, obviously had a lot of a lot of choices because the budget with what Eater must be paying you oh, had a skyrocket. You were you could have gone anywhere. <laughs> exactly. No, it's uh actually I totally lucked out. My space has. A really reasonable rent and I'm in a cool neighborhood. I think I must, you know, owe someone a child or I don't know. I think the key to that is just having time and not not being in a, you don't have to do it that weekend. If you have a little time to look, I found seven years ago, I found an incredible place Mm -hmm. that I rented Yeah, because I had time. So that helps. Yeah. And I did do that for a while. I um, actually, a high school friend was moving out and I moved in. It was great. So do you, will you be cooking at home at all or are you going to be eating out all the time? Well, I'm eating out all the time. I'm eating out probably five to six times a week. Okay. Um, which is actually more when I, 
than what I was doing when I was a restaurant critic. Um, so I am out five to six times a week, but when I'm not doing that, I like to cook at home. Um, I have the Six Seasons cookbook I've been cooking through, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I am exhausted, as I often am, it's usually just a jar of kimchi with chopsticks. Well, so. that's easy. Yeah. So what? Are, but what are you best at cooking? What's your favorite thing? If you have your druthers and you have a friend coming over and you want to impress, yeah. what would you make? Well, um, I love, so when I was a kid, my family traveled quite a bit through Latin America. Mm. Um, so I do carnitas pretty well. I do tacos pretty well. Um, I have a bunch of masa in my fridge that I'll probably use um, for that sometime soon. Um, and also, when I was in Indonesia, I took a few cooking classes. So um, sometimes I like to cook some uh, Indonesian food just because it's hard to find around here. You know, if I can't go out and eat it, I might as well make it, right? I'm sure you'll find it along <laughs> yeah. the way. Yeah, hopefully. So um, did you, from your childhood, you always had an interest in food? Was that from traveling? What- you know, it's sort of interesting. So my mother... Uh, collected copies of Bon Appetit magazine. She started about a decade before I was born. I have those, by the way. Yeah? When I was married, we used to collect... The copies of Bon Appetit? Yeah. Bon Appetit and Gourmet, and we took the... I wish I could still do this again, because it was was one of my favorite things about my marriage. We used to take every Sunday, and the two of us would alternate, and you couldn't come in the kitchen. The other person couldn't come in the kitchen. Oh, how cute. So we'd serve it, and it was all a surprise. And oh, it was, and, and yeah, it was a little bit of a, it was tough because she was way better cook than I was, but I did the best I could. Yeah, you roll with it, yeah. you know, and I feel like, you know, cooking and following a recipe are usually different things I've noticed. You can, anyone can kind of follow a recipe. If you're meticulous, you'll be really good at following a recipe, right. but there is something about understanding how flavors work that I think is sort of separate from what you might learn cook. You know, some people can do both and do them really well. Usually those are the real cooks, but you know, I don't know. I grew up, my mom worked off recipes every once in a while, but really she just understood flavors. So it was and kind so of... so you picked it up? Because yeah. I was thinking about that this morning. I saw Javier from, Javier from um, Urdaneta yeah. put a scallop dish out on Instagram that he's been working on. Okay. And he had little, uh, you know, little mm-hmm. tiny egg yolks on, on each scallop. And I thought, man, you have to be, and it's, this is not news, but it's incredible how the chefs around here, you know, that's why I started doing this because it's, to me, it's, I respect what they're doing just from the, almost the top of their head. Of course they use some mm-hmm. recipes, but as a base, but, um, do you still, do you, do you still marvel? I mean, you're in the food yeah. business. You've, you've been a critic, you're going out and eating a lot of places. Do you still get excited and does it still, um, does it still excite you? Oh Yeah. And I, I, I guess that's redundant. That wasn't the word I was looking for. No, I think that um, I'm absolutely. I mean, there's a reason I like to do this. It, it brings me joy and it always has. Um, and I think that um, actually moving up to Portland, being able to cover the restaurants I cover here, it adds a new excitement to it. So I was, you know, I, I have a strong place in my heart for Salem where I was working before this. Um, but gosh, it's a whole different ball game when you're working here and you're working in this market. So, um, so how would you uh, quantify it? So a scale of zero to 100 on food scene, where would you put Portland and then Salem? Oh, no. I'm going to alienate all my friends. No, you won't. It's just a matter of how much sure. there is. Yeah, I would say that, okay, so I would say Salem 10 years ago, probably like a 20. 
Um, it's gone up quite a bit since then. I would say we're up to like a, a 35. I'm, I'm going to do zero to 100, 100 being the best food city in the country. And zero right, okay. being, you know. That's fine. Yeah. Um, and I would say Portland, that's got to be right around, I mean, it's 80 plus. It's definitely in the like closer to A range than B range. Um, but I still really am excited to watch Portland continue to grow. I think we have a ton of really talented, innovative chefs. Um, but I think, you know, this is an unpopular opinion, but I think that actually with all of the, um, uh, interest in Portland specifically, you're getting, um, some really talented chefs that are coming here. And I think that that's going to continue to build competition and that chefs will get stronger. Um, I think now we're in a kind of awkward growth, you know, growth spurt sort of, um, transition phase. But, um, once we kind of start to, um, grow in a, a positive way, I really do think that we're going to, it's going to be easily, easily uh, comparable with New York. Well, per capita, though, it's right up there with New York yeah. and L.A. I think that's just yeah. my opinion. Well, I and mean, I don't really know. But sure. I mean, you're at, we're at the point where if you want to go try something different all the time, mm-hmm. we have that here. You know, what I used to say was um, we... If you want to eat in New York, and I think this is changing, but back in the day when I was, uh, I'm an Oregonian, but I was living in Boston, I used to say New York has the best cheap food, like food under $5, and the best really expensive food, you know, if you're going to like 11 Madison Park. Um, Portland has the best of everything else, everything in that range for above $5 and under $300. We do it best, I think maybe in the country. Um are certainly better than anywhere else I've covered or visited in that range. Wow, that's interesting. So yeah. the other, to your point on mm-hmm. how we're maturing as a market, what I've just noticed recently mm-hmm. or just thought about was, um, you know, a lot of our great chefs came as cooks who just wanted to get into the market, yeah. and this was cheaper than San Francisco, and they gained some experience, and now... People like Gabriel Rucker have restaurants, and they're expanding. But I just noticed, so when Tanner Creek Tavern had Trevor Payne move on to mm-hmm. Verdigree, they brought in a seasoned Michelin star chef from Napa Valley. Right. And you didn't see that. You didn't see that years ago. Yeah. and That I, th- I remember. And I think about Arden, you know, that's a chef that worked in Michelin starred kitchens. Right. You have a lot of um, folks that are coming here because there is something, I mean, Portland is in many ways, you know, this promised land of, you know, you have this incredible growing season. You have, I mean, this is, everyone knows this. I'm not, you know, I'm just sort of repeating what everyone has said for decades, but I really do think that people, as people start to recognize that this is a great place for chefs to be, more people want to come here, not because they want to get started, but because they want to be here. So I think that's really changed the way the market works. And but, it, you know, I mean, I had an interesting conversation with a chef that will remain nameless until the story runs. But uh, she was saying, God, people need to stop opening restaurants because the people that have been here for a minute, people get distracted and forget about them in, in a year. And, you know, I kind of feel like, yes, but also this is an opportunity for us to really grow and and, you know, uh, find the real talent and foster it. You know, I mean, but, that's all... been, but chefs have been saying that for years or, or restaurant owners. Let's go yeah. that way. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, we have too many restaurants for the number of people that are here. Yep. And I don't know. I just read. I didn't realize this, that our population is starting to, to drop slow. A little bit. Yeah. 
because of crime and housing costs and uh I guess there were a few other issues that mm-hmm. don't come to mind. It's not because of the food scene. It's no, not slowing because of the food scene. That's true. But, um, you know, we just have too many restaurants. I mean, I remember ten, when I first started doing my thing 10 years ago, hearing mm-hmm. chefs go, say, man, I wish it would stop. That was 10 years ago. Yeah. So, and it didn't. No. So, and now, so you're also, you get to take a little bit of the responsibility for promoting <laughs> yep. the concept of the shiny new thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what Eater does. You're- In many ways, yeah. I think that um, it's interesting because, yeah, our brand is so centered around um, being a, a restaurant obsessive. You know, I want to know. I don't want to just read one story about the new place that opened up. I want to know when they have a menu. I want to look at the menu before it runs. I want to know how people are feeling about it once it's open. I want to know. Everything, I want to look inside. I want to, you know, I want to know what the chef was thinking when they made this dish. You know, we want to provide all of that. We're going to sort of, it's kind of a tsunami of stuff. But I think that we can also provide important context. When you're, I had an old editor um, when I worked, I was um, a freelancer, regular contributor um, at the Boston Globe. And uh, I had an editor there who said, you know, part of beat reporting is that you end up getting to tell the larger narrative of a story of a of a place with very many stories with with, um, y- you know, you are telling stories so constantly that you end up telling a larger narrative. And I think that that's what Eater gets to do um, because we cover things so frequently. and We cover them so exhaustively. Uh, we are telling the larger story of a place. And I think that's really special. I think that's what um, the Eater City model w- does really well. What I'm planning to do more this year is um, add a little bit more of that context for a lot of people who are moving here um, that maybe don't know the food scene very well, that are just getting into the food scene, who might not understand, for instance, like the lineages of chefs here. Because, you know, as you mentioned, yeah, there are people who move in here, but I've noticed that people don't leave as often. Chefs, when they come here, they tend to stay and then they teach chefs. And now there are these sort of webs of, you know, People who <laughs> learned in the house rocker, the house Vitali, you know, like I think that um, understanding that can help you understand the deeper um, undercurrents of the restaurant scene. So I'm trying to work on providing more context and nuance to our conversation. I think that's interesting. I've never mm-hmm. even, I've never put that together, that yeah. thought. But no, they don't leave very yeah. often. I mean, Chris Carricker just left Blue Hour to go to San Diego. Yeah. And I kind of thought that was, you really noticed that because... Unusual. First of all, we yeah. all think, hey, who, well, San Diego's not so bad either. <laughs> so, um, you know, they should want to be in Portland. Mm-hmm. But uh, so are you, are you given freedom to take Eater in a li- slightly different direction locally? Yeah. Have they given you that, that freedom? So I love the team um, that I work with at Eater um, on the sort of national side of things and the people who sort of oversee what I do because they are really hands off. You know, um, I... Talk with my, the city's editor, uh, Carolyn, you know, a few times, I would say a month, sometimes more frequently, depending on, I mean. Is that email or phone? Email, uh, Slack, phone, Skype, any possible way. She came up and I got to take her to a few restaurants, which was fun. Um, But, you know, she's very much like, listen, there's a thing that we kind of try to do. We, You know, we want a consistent style and, and, you know, we want to make sure that your work is, you know, um, meeting our standards. But, you know, you do get a little bit of freedom to sort of say, this is how I, I feel like this is the site that I want to run. So Eater's always going to cover um, 
you know, those openings. We're going to do that kind of menu reveal. We're going to do that kind of stuff. Um, But I think that we can do both easily. And in fact, I think, you know, if you just look at the way people read stories, those opening stories are always going to do way better than any contextual story. But I think that if you can tell an opening story well and then provide the context and ways to find context elsewhere, you're going to give people, you're going to be courteous to your readers in a way that I think is really important. So I'm trying to do both. We're working on it. That's interesting. And I wish I would have looked it up before we came Mm -hmm. in, but I noticed a few weeks ago there was one article you did that you pretty much took pictures of all the menu items and discussed them, which Mm -hmm. is not something I remember. And I'm not checking all the cities in either, but it's not something I really remember. So I felt like you're... Crit- the critic in you was can't help it. <laughs> yeah, so you had you may not have been able to criticize it, right. but you it seemed to me that you couldn't resist the temptation to showcase all there was that you had. Right. So, and I would also imagine if you didn't like it, you wouldn't have done that. So that was a little signal too, a subtle signal. Yeah, I think you know bias is such an interesting topic um, in journalism now, and. I try to be as aware and conscious of my biases as I can be. But I'm going to cover restaurants that we're excited about. I need to be able to articulate why. Um, but, you know, we highlight those dishes we think are really exceptional and that inside the dishes. Or we highlight the ones that chefs are really um, partial to, that they have, that you know, have deep meaning for them or ones that they thought through. So that segment um, we're calling, it's in, part of Eater Inside, inside the Dishes. Um, I've done it for Art and Wine Bar. I did it for Il Salito. I believe I did it for someone else. Um, but yeah, we just shoot a few of the dishes and then we can sort of talk through what was the chef thinking about when they made this? Are they, you know, the conversation of like locally sourced that doesn't really mean much at this point. We use it so frequently. And, you know, what is local? Local can mean a lot of different things. Local doesn't necessarily mean environmentally friendly. doesn't mean seasonal. Um, so that gives us an opportunity. If the sourcing is particularly interesting, I can say, okay, this came from this farm in this area. What's interesting about that farm is that they do this. Um, you know, that's the stuff we can do when we do it inside the dishes. And it also gives people a guide to the menu before they walk in. I've stared at a menu and even as a, you know, when I, as a professional eater, uh, I still sometimes get daunted and it's nice to know, oh, I remember they're doing their pasta in house and that meatball is a special family recipe. I'm going to get that. You know what I mean? I think that's important. Mm-hmm. And I also know that when we first met, you um, expressed that you'd really like to highlight those restaurants that aren't shiny and new. Yep. And I've always felt that's important, too, because, <clears throat> frankly, those are the ones that have been around a long time mm-hmm. and gone through changes and, and not only changes at the restaurant, but market mm-hmm. changes, drastic market, market changes since two thousand, since the year 2000 here. Yeah. Uh, and they're still doing well. So they have to fight and almost create these, I wouldn't say this, they have to create PR opportunities so that they can pitch you on something. It's They can't just write yeah. you and say, hey, listen, we're still doing the great thing and it's not going to get any press. Right. So it's it's too bad that they, but it keeps them stretching and doing new things, mm-hmm. I think. Absolutely. And I, I think, so the way I think about it is, it's my job to make sure that I find people the best dining experiences that I can and I provide the news you know um, which puts me in a hard position in terms of making sure I highlight restaurants that are great but you know I, I can't make up news if there isn't news so I think that you know using those anniversaries um, I think that's really important um, I think that when a restaurant 
is sort of around for a little bit, um, if they're a great restaurant, they'll probably be featured on quite a few maps. We're updating maps. We're trying to update maps within six months to a year. So we've been going through a lot of our sort of legacy maps, the ones that people are checking off and making sure that they're up to date and cleaning them up a little bit. So we've been working on that a little bit, which if you're like, I feel like I haven't seen a new map in a while. It's We're doing a lot of, um, we're cleaning house a little bit. Um, so we want to make sure that we're highlighting those places there. Our maps are, you know, a huge part of our brand and they're used like crazy. I'm tracking those metrics. People are looking at those maps constantly. That's a great opportunity for those chefs. Um, and I also think, you know, when we hit major anniversaries, if that is a time to talk with someone, I think it absolutely fits. You know, I'm working on something for DOCs about to hit their 10 year anniversary. So that's a big conversation. Um, and I also think that there's a series that I'm starting that I'm, I'm hoping I can get folks to sign on for where we have a conversation about food issues or food identity um, with long-standing chefs in, in Portland. So, you know, I want to have these opportunities for chefs to say, okay, you've been around for a while. You're clearly knowledgeable. You're clearly seasoned in this area. What do you think about these other issues? What are the things that you face day to day um, from that side of things? And what do diners not necessarily recognize or might want to know more about in terms of how you run your business? So that's a little bit what we do. Yeah, exactly. So, and, <laughs> and I find that, I find that, you know, those right, are the exactly. things people want to know. They can go in and eat. Yeah. Anytime and see the decor, but mm -hmm. find out a little the story behind it is yeah. nice. And I, again, it's that, that thing of giving people what they want, but also providing context. So people want to know where, do I, where should I eat? And it's my job to make sure I have the best answer for that. Um, but to also go, okay, how, how do you decide where to eat? Is it just quality of food? We got that. But if you also are thinking about who that chef is and what they stand for. And, you know, then that gives, a, again, that deeper understanding of the restaurant market and, and also the choices you make as a consumer. Well, I also think there's vibe involved, too. So yeah. there's decor. Who are you going with? Is this going to be romantic? Is this business? Is mm -hmm. it just fun? Uh, and, the, you know, what's the staff like? All those issues. Right at the Fork, Chris, is made possible from our good friends at Ringside Hospitality Group. Well, that would include Ringside Steakhouse mm -hmm. and Ringside Fish House. And you'll probably, I would suggest everybody get on their mailing list. It's quite vast. You know, they've been around a long time, since way before the internet was here. So uh, for 75 years, they've been family owned by the Peterson family. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also have some incredible things you'll find out about if you're on their email newsletter list. So one of those is uh, Mondays at Ringside Steakhouse. They have primetime Mondays. They offer a $35 three-course prime dinner. While supplies last. Of right. course, they can only make so much prime rib, but that includes mixed greens. You get a 10-ounce prime rib with your choice of baked potato, followed by their creme brulee for dessert. You can also check out at the Fish House their Dollar Oyster Mondays. Where else can you get the best oysters for a buck a shuck, which I love to say on a weekly basis? So I've now got this the Mondays lodged in my mind for either Ringside Steakhouse or Ringside Fish House because... I love oysters. I love prime rib. Yeah. Every Monday from 3 to close in the Fish House Lounge. You can also check out the Wine Down Sundays. Every Sunday, Ringside Fish House offering 50% off most bottles of wines from a wine list of over 600 labels. This offer is valid in the dining room only, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, the other thing you want to check out, which uh, my dear friend John Gorham of Toro Bravo brought to my attention a few years ago when I asked what his favorite things to, where his favorite places to go were with the... We're the happy hour oh, yeah. at uh, uh, at Ringside Steakhouse after nine o'clock. I think it might be nine, but you can check. You can check yourself. Mm -hmm. But it's 
It's a late night happy hour, and the stuff on the menu is fantastic. I just had uh, steak bites made nice and rare, a great Caesar salad, and a beer. 15 bucks. We're talking ringside steakhouse here. Wow. Very nice. You can't beat that. If you'd like to go, you can make reservations online, ringsidesteakhouse.com or ringsidefishhouse.com. How much of the Eater 38 is going to be your sole opinion? Do you get other, do you seek out other opinions? Because I know, you know, the Eater 38 plays, stays pretty constant. From what I've seen is three or four roll in and out every time it changes. Mm -hmm. So the, the other 30... Or 34, stay there for a while. Yeah. So that has to do with a little bit of how we um, distinguish between a heat map and an Eater 38. So our Eater 38 is if you have 38 restaurants that you're like that you think are emblematic of Portland, those are the 38. So part of the reason it doesn't change that often is because they're the restaurants that will stay great for a long time. Um, but but I'm, I'm in the middle. I, what sure. I'm getting at is. Will your list be different than Maddie's? And was that different than Aaron's? I mean, yeah. So I think I am working on a larger overhaul of of Maddie's list. So essentially, what I'm doing is I'm eating my way. I, you know, I made a few changes in the other one based on the experiences that I've had. I've eaten at all those restaurants, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, I was exploring the other options, things that maybe have been removed recently, that kind of thing, um, and sort of get a better idea of okay, what. What should we add? What is ready to be added? What what maybe has gotten a little tired or a little rusty over time? And then what, you know, what is really deserving of a spot on that list? So I've been eating like crazy. Um, we're going to have an update for that, I believe, in June, maybe July. Um, and that will be, I'm expecting to remove and add 10, right around 10 restaurants. Because I do want to make sure that it is... Uh, true to our current market. Well, I also think it's subjective. Anybody's yeah. opinion is subjective. So I think it's there's nothing wrong with the fact that Maddie sure. probably had some stalwarts on there that were never mm-hmm. going to go away, mm-hmm. and you probably will have that too. So yeah. do you would would you or have you consulted Maddie at all? Oh yeah, uh, Maddie's a really great resource. He's a sweetheart, and you know, I mean, part of the thing that was great about jumping in on the Eater Thirty Eight is that we agree. Like, you know, in, in many ways, I feel like that list when I walked in, I felt like I could stand by that list myself. They're the ones that I immediately thought of. But um, I really do think that there will be some changes. And, you know, it's funny because when I was working on the current 38, I gave him a call and said, why did you add that? And I just so I could get a little idea of yeah, that- his thought process and, you know, how different it was from mine and whether or not I really stood by that spot. Getting a little bit of his perspective can be helpful. And I, something I was going to mention earlier um, when you were talking about other perspectives, we just started a Facebook group. I was going to ask you about yeah. that. I'm glad you're going there. Right. I think you're asking for trouble. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I like having um, a resource. I think very, very adamantly that a critique is not a condemnation, that um, I want to be a resource for readers, and I want readers to feel like they know who I am, that they can talk to me and reach out to me, that they can have a conversation in that space. And so far, it's been really civil. People have been, you know, totally on track. You know, no one's been, I, I actually, one of the questions I have is like, are you going to be rude if you join this group? You're not allowed to be rude because, well, you know, treat your human with respect, your fellow human. But it's not Willamette Week. It's not either. So everybody isn't anonymous. So they have right. to, their name is attached to everything they say. Mm-hmm. So that makes right 
yeah. at that, it's going to make a difference. Right. Um, and, you know, you see that kind of, um, I don't know, There, I'm a part of a lot of those sort of uh, interesting public almost Facebook groups um, that are sort of like national or global. And there can be a lot of vicious behavior in that way, even with um, the tie to Facebook. But I think that Portland. There is a lot of um, ire here. There are people that are really passionate. Um, but I think, you know, at, in essence, people are interested in food. And, and I think that this so far, because the topic is really specified to restaurant recommendations and conversations about restaurants, it has remained pretty civil. And, and it's also been really helpful for me to get a better idea of, OK, where are people eating? Not just what, you know, the places that are on my radar because I'm steeped in it were the places that you know the person who's lived here for 20 years still loves to visit i think those are important too and i need to make sure that they're on my radar as well so you know i've been crowdsourcing a little bit in terms of my reporting um just to make sure that i have a comprehensive reporting list because we're comprehensive in how we report but not comprehensive in what we include mainly because we want to make sure that it's curated yeah but i would think you know that's still tough because when Mm -hmm. you're going out to the public and saying what are your opinions on this yeah. I mean, some people just have terrible opinions. I mean, they're just not qualified. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So you, ha- you have to then further screen those out. And so By maybe, there. maybe, right. <laughs> but so you got to do further research or mm. at some point down the road, you'll know some of the folks well enough to know, okay, this is someone mm-hmm. I got to listen to. I mean, we, who, who is not going to ask Gary right. where to go to eat anywhere when you're going to a city? Um, right. Now, he and I tend to like slightly different food, but I know I'm not going to get a bad recommendation. What I'd like to get from him is uh, a billfold of money because he goes to more expensive places. <laughs> than, than I can Let me know if that happens. Yeah, because I can't afford the places that he sure. goes. Uh, I just um, made reservations to go to Bologna. And, wow. um, and okay, of course, I can't remember the name right. Oh, uh, Osteria Francescana. Um, so I'm going to look at reservations there. And Gary had sent me a $70 pasta dish four years ago. So great that he likes that, yeah. but that's a whole different thing. So I looked and, you know, that that's going to set me back 400 bucks, something. Yikes. Is that something I want to do for one meal? I don't know for the experience. Although I did just see two of places I went last year on Chef's Table. So I'm really that's excited. That's pretty exciting. I'm so yeah. excited. Um, the Roca Brothers. I got a picture of me with all three of them. Oh. And, but I wish I'd seen that beforehand, mm-hmm. the episode, so I really knew the history of the restaurant. I learned it afterwards, so you yeah. go somewhere. But at any rate, um, that's neither here nor there. But um, I find when you – I saw one of your posts, and you were looking for something. I don't remember what it was. And, you know, right off the bat, I can name three that come to mind. And then I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, did I leave – what if what if Bonnie from Kachka sees that I didn't include her? I have this – remorse afterwards like i gotta add everybody so i always find it difficult to respond to those things well you know it's interesting because i think again it's you know i am um the only people i i love our restaurant community we have so many passionate talented chefs here but i am working for eaters so you know i have to really think you know and in a certain way i'm respectful of the chefs here but you know their feelings not super high on my priority list at this point. So, you know, I think I want to make sure that I'm including the places that deserve to be covered. So if it's a list of, I don't know, um, an Eater 38 kind of list, of course I'm going to include Kachka because Kachka is one of the best restaurants in Portland easily. Um, but I, I do think that 
how I feel about a chef and whether or not they belong on a certain list. Those things have to be separate. Um, in terms of, you know, going back a little bit to what you were saying about um, recommendations, who you can trust in terms of opinion, I think that is so crucial. And it's something that we really have to think about. Um, I remember, God, I want to say it was like 2010, that review of Per Se came out and they lost stars and it was a huge deal, right? And I remember that's when I found Helen Rosner, one of my idols. I, I love her. Um, she's now at The New Yorker. She was at Eater. Um, you know, she was saying that the power of that kind of, rev of review is that when people go out to eat at those restaurants that are lauded um, and they have a bad meal, they think it's their fault, that they don't, they can't appreciate good food, et cetera, et cetera. People blame themselves when it's a bad restaurant, which is the value of a really good critic to be able to say, no, that's not great. This is, this is how it should be done. This is what a restaurant should be, you know? So I think that in terms of how we build maps, I'm trying to make sure that I can stand by any recommendation that we make. Um, because it is really important people look to us and I hate hearing that someone said, oh, I use this map and I had this meal here and it was terrible. That it's like deeply upsetting. I have that like gross stomach feeling. And, you know, I want to make sure that I can stand behind anything. So I would never put something on a list that I haven't tried myself. But I think that you discover once you've eaten at so-and-so's place, they recommend what's it called. I eat there and it's a bad experience. Um, I'll know not to include them, but it is, I think it's important to also hear how people are eating and eat how people are eating and be able to have that critical eye as you go. Is that one bad experience you would leave them off or would you? So no, I'd you go have back. One, yeah, I'd, you, I'd you always go, go back. back. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't, here's, here's what I'll say. Um, I try to go to a restaurant at least twice before I include it on any list. Um, if, when I wrote restaurant reviews, I would try to do more than that. Because oh, you some, have to. Well, it was <laughs> my old place. I kind of ran the show. I, I had my own rules. I think that I actually ended up having I was in a market that was tough in terms of um, I had an editor who didn't quite understand the food industry and he didn't really understand why I wouldn't have to go more than once. Um, and it was a sort of, you know, and, and the way I think nationally uh, restaurant budgets have just sort of shrunk makes it really difficult for people to go back, um, you know, two, three, four, five times. Ideally, someone should go to a restaurant five times before they write a review about that, it. That, we mm -hmm. used to have Food Dude, yeah. Portland Food and Drink, doing yeah. that, and yeah. he would do 10 at his own expense right. and not tell anybody who he was. Mm -hmm. So um, that was very impressive, and I don't know if that's still happening. It's hard, because, and there are plenty of reasons for why that's happening. You know, I think part of it is that people don't have the restaurant budgets they used to, Part well, of it is that newspapers don't have newspapers the money they used to. And I, you know, I think about, um, you know, even just across a town, I think people do have pretty decent restaurant budgets, but, you know, they are also experiencing layoffs. And, you know, right. they there's also that thing of, you know, you're not hiring a critic to have on staff. You're freelancing your critic, which means they don't, you know, have to pay for their benefits and they don't have to, you know what I mean? Like people are trying to figure out how to make it work. But it does mean that you have a complicated way in terms of how you behave as a critic and also how well you can trust certain critics. So, you know, I try to go to a restaurant again a couple times before I put them on a map, especially. Is that always at eater's expense? 
it is not always at eater's expense. It is at eater's expense to a certain point. We have a food budget, mm-hmm. um, but it's often my own. Um, okay. And I think... And then where do free meals come in? Because I wanted to ask you about that right. because there was a certain critic in town who made a big stink out of once you have a free meal, you can't write about it, that place at all. Right. And I don't agree with that if you're not a critic. Sure. So, I mean, wait, now let me clarify that. If you're a critic, I agree with that. If you're not a critic, I don't think that same thing applies. I think it's tough. Um, so our here is the Eater's Ethics Statement. Uh, essentially, and you can find this online, um, Eater critics, so people that are actually hired as critics that write restaurant reviews, they can never accept a free meal, period. Mm-hmm. Um, eater editors are allowed to accept free meals to a certain price. Um, usually if I'm accepting a comped meal, um, I will say explicitly that this does not promise coverage and it doesn't promise positive coverage. Now, I will also say that that is wildly different than other places I've worked. When I was at the Statesman, we accepted nothing more than $5 from anyone. Um, when Good tacos you can review for that. <laughs> I usually paid for my tacos, but I, you know, it was like very adamant. And there were people that were very sweet and would go, here's half of a wing. You can try half of a wing for free. And then, you know, I'd end up putting more in the tip jar. Um, and it became a conflict in terms of there was a restaurant I really loved in Salem that I had to stop visiting because they kept trying to give me free food. They gonna, yeah. walk me do, out of the restaurant. Do you have to do you then? So if the dish is eight dollars on the menu, are you then refusing it because you don't? Well, want I it? just pay for it. I, I think oh, okay. that, yeah, um, I would, you know, pay my way every time. Um, but if it's not then, on the bill, if the chef is bringing over comped dishes because they want you to right. try it. Right. I mean, I think there's validity to that. Here, try this. Right. You didn't order it. This is what I like. Sure. Um, I think that, you know, again, and I'll, when I was at the Statesman, no way. Like, we would pay for it. Um, when I'm here, it just happens. People recognize me, and, and there was a certain point where, you know, I, I want to be as thoughtful about how I accept that stuff because I don't want anyone to feel like they can buy me off, and I don't want anyone to feel like, um, I'm taking advantage of them in any way. So, you know, I try to be as clear and transparent as I can be about that stuff because, you know, if someone really wants to bring me in, they really want me to try their food, I probably already have. But if they want me to try their food and I haven't, I'll go in. But it is always a conversation of this doesn't promise coverage, it doesn't promise positive coverage. Um, and so far that has been reasonable. But I can hear my first editor in the back of my head going, oh, dear, Brooke, you're not doing that, are you? <laughs> well, but it's the but it's market. A different publication it's a different, and your role yeah. is different. So right. that's that was my beef with this the critic who will rename, remain nameless is that there's we're in a world of social media where, OK, is a social media post something that you mm-hmm. shouldn't post something that was free food if you liked it? I mean, everybody's a lot, of, not everybody, but a lot of people do that. And um, I th- just think there's different criteria. How much influence does a publicist have on you? Because mm. let's let's face it, they pitch you, right? Every, every good yeah. publicist is going to be pitching you. So therefore, and I'm only asking this question because I've heard, I've heard complaints from those out there who don't get all the coverage, who don't have publicists, who've said, yeah, sure. it's the people with the big PR budgets. They're the ones who get this and that and this and that. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I can't agree with that or disagree, but sure. you're dealing with it. So it's interesting people say that. Um, I, there are some press reps that I like as people and, you know, will hang out and that's fun and nice. I, and they can be very helpful in certain stories, but I'm very adamant 
that we don't rely too much on publicists. And I know that... Um, but they're going to bring things to your attention. Yeah, of course. That's their job. Sure. And But then again, I also want to make sure that... So, for instance, if I'm working on researching places to visit for a map, um, I should also... I just want to clarify, I've never asked for a free meal. If people also offers me a free meal, that's fine. Um, but I, I never say I would like to visit your restaurant. Please call me a meal. No, I would that, never, ever inappropriate. You'd be, you'd be totally gone out of the market and out yeah, of exactly, in two seconds. Exactly. I would never do that. I know some folks have in my, oh, mar- my, in my job. Yeah. I, lo- I love when. Uh, Not in my current job, but in I love the food when market. I see chefs posting the actual yeah. letters that they get yeah. from mostly people out of town who want a free meal. Right. So it's great. Right. Um, but I do want to say that um, if someone offers me a free meal or not, I'm going to eat out like, you know, I, I'm, I'm making sure I make sure I research really um, obsessively. So what that means is, yeah, I have the places that publicists recommend. Um, I also am making sure I checked OCC records to make sure that I have all the most recent restaurants within a particular category. There's a full list of any restaurant with a liquor license that you can find through OCC. Oh my God, you're so thorough. It yeah. would be so and easy <laughs> to just go. Kind of, it would be so easy to go with just, I'll go with what I right. basically know. Yeah. But although that's re- that's kind of tough for you because I view it as, as part of the criteria for this podcast mm-hmm. is what do we see on Eater? Right. What's being buzzed about and what's being talked about? You sure. can't do that because you have to create the buzz. Right. And, and you know, that also involves, okay, what are people talking about? What are people talking about on Chowhound? What are people talking about on Twitter? You know, being ingrained in the restaurants that people are buzzing, the people, you know, because I... I don't like the idea that I create buzz. I'm I'm picking it up. I'd like to think that I'm kind of a, a lightning rod for it. You're amplifying it. Right. Um, you know, I have a friend who, um, I should say a former source that I've, I'm now friendly with, who he covers something called a viral cascade, which is how does something go viral on the internet? And what he sort of noticed about Twitter is that there are two humps of how something goes viral. So people talk about it. People kind of stop talking about it and then publications pick it up and then it gets way larger. So, you know, that's part of our job is to figure out what people find interesting and amplify it for people who aren't Internet humans. So um, anyway, what I'm saying is, is that I find the restaurants people are talking about and, and pick those out. But if I see that restaurants have opened, I try to get there as soon as possible, at least within the first two weeks. But that might not necessarily be how I rate it in terms of including it on a map, because... I don't know. Again, that same editor. I had the best editor when I started. I learned so much from her. Our friends at San Pellegrino would like to shine the spotlight this week on Paley's Place. Now one of the institutions of Portland dining, Paley's Place planted its roots in Portland in 1993. Paley's Place has always been on the forefront of showcasing Oregon's local bounties and blends it with Chef Paley's Russian and French influences. Many of the chefs who've made their own marks in Portland have honed their knowledge and skills in the Paley's Kitchen, including Gabriel Rucker, Jason French, Ben Bettinger, Kristen Murray, and Doug Adams, just to name a few. Kimberly Paley oversees the beverage program at Paley's Place, and it's a great place to imbibe in superior local Pinot Noirs and international wines. But don't forget to enhance your meal with a sparkling bottle of San Pellegrino at Paley's, or anywhere. And check into sanpellegrino.com to see where the best chefs in the world recommend that you dine. Here in Portland, San Pellegrino suggests you make a reservation soon to enjoy the best in Portland dining at Paley's Place. How long ago did you start, by the way? 
Uh, How long have you been doing this? <laughs> not uh, that long. I have been doing it for about five years. Okay. Um, so I started really young. I kind of knew I wanted to be a food writer by the time I was six. So, oh, so I was you're first... 11 now? Is that yeah. the... <laughs> no, no. no, so I, I was published for the first time when I was 13. Uh, I had my food blog back in the day when I was 16. Uh, by the time I was 18, I was working for a food startup. Um, I was published in a few magazines by the time I was 19. I started working at the Globe when I was 20. Wow. Um, and then I was fully freelancing by the time I was 21. And when was your first Eater article and what was that? Okay, so um, my first Eater article was recent, but the first time I appeared on Eater was uh, <laughs> a little bit of a mess. So I was 18. Um, I was writing about James Beard nominees for the student newspaper. I went to Boston University. Um and uh, Jamie Bissonnette, who owns a few restaurants in New York and Boston, um, he was a Chopped winner. I watched his Chopped episode. Um, I, you know, was really adamantly interested in the chef. I really liked his restaurants. Um, I still recommend Copa for people who visit Boston. Um, he, I met him in person. And during all of that, I knew he had hair. Um, but for some reason... Uh, when I wrote the story, um, I called him bald. I said he was a bald chef in my lead, which why? Why Why is that an important detail? Anyway. Well, Larry David would say <laughs> that's a compliment. <laughs> there you go. I don't know if he quite saw it that way. Uh, so I uh, I wrote the story and went through editors. It's It's bizarre that it also made it through editors because there was a photo of him with hair in it. But anyway, so it made it <laughs> online and someone told him about it when it posted online and he commented, we're okay to swear on here, yeah? Okay. Bald, are you fucking high? <laughs> uh, was the comment on the page. So I am mortified. I'm, you know, I'm a kid and I'm like very nervous and crying. I write this really heartfelt letter to him saying like, I'm so sorry. That's not what I stand for. You know, accuracy is our most important. Do you have you any know. idea why you said that? No. Can you recall? No idea. I think I must have like mentally confused him with Chris Santos. Right. I have no idea be, what it was. It had to be confusion with somebody <laughs> else. Or just that moment you just crossed. I just it. freaked out. And, you know, I was also sort of new and, and, you know, recently on this beat. And I was kind of going, oh, what am I doing? I got really nervous about it. But he, anyway, so I write this in a letter. He's like, no, don't sweat it. I thought it was hilarious. Also, it's fun that Eater picked it up. And uh, so it made it onto an Eater Boston list. And then Eater National picked it up and put it on an Eater National list. Um, and then at one point, I think the Dana Cowan, the former editor of Boot and Wine, texted him about it. So it was my, you know, 15 seconds of infamy when I first started. And it... Uh, made me terrified of corrections, which is probably a good thing. I'm one who thinks that some of the best things in life occur when you when you you make screw a up. big big screw up and <laughs> yeah. you and you and you fix it. So yeah. good for you for that. So what do you think was the um there must have been or were there? Were mm-hmm. there a lot of people who applied for the Portland Eater editor job? Do you know and do you did they tell you what it was about you that put you that put you over the top? Yeah, so um, I have no idea how many people applied for my job. I know that there were a few finalists because I, you know, I did a couple of rounds of interviews. I did an edit test. Um, and what I heard from my editor once I started, she essentially said that she liked that I had a strong ethical background, that I was interested. I, I had good re- reporting skills. I think that it's really important that, you know, when I was in Boston, um, I noticed that I was really reliant on uh, press releases and publicists, you know, and. Um, I 
And I kind of wanted to go to a place where that wasn't a job that existed. So I went to Salem. I don't think there's, as far as I know, there is one publicist in Salem and she is not actually in Salem. She's in Portland representing some folks there, but you know, pretty much no one. Um, And what that means is that you have to figure out how to get people to talk to you and you have to find things through public documents. So I'm really an adamant uh, believer in using public documents to your advantage and understanding how you can find out about restaurants, you know, outside of the restaurants and, and, and outside of Google. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, um, I had the, that background and those skills. And also, you know, I, I think I worked in newsrooms and, you know, working in newsrooms, I think any young food person who is interested in, in writing professionally, go take a terrible overnight shift at a newspaper because the skills you learn in terms of how to interview, in terms of finding information that you need to find, um, those skills are um, invaluable. And I think fewer and fewer people have them. Um, and I couldn't do my job without them. Those skills, and they're going to be a lost art, right? Because those jobs are not going to be around any longer. Right. The newspapers are just not going to be there. And so when you watch, um, you know, a lot of the, like the Post, mm-hmm. right, which was years ago, but you just see those skills, that, the digging and the digging that have to go mm-hmm. on and the checking before anything runs. That's something that I think in this internet age and where people have blogs, mm-hmm. it's completely, yeah. it's just not even something that people know about. Right. So it's interesting you mentioned that. I think I, I'm going to give a shout out to the Globe. I love, love, love the people there. And again, it was like the greatest place for me to learn. Um, and everyone should watch Spotlight. But um, I yeah, think Sp- that's the other movie. I was yeah, it's very the great. The Post and Spotlight, yeah. two of the best movies I remember in the last couple of years. Yeah, and they're both journalism movies. Um, right. I think um, the Globe, what it really offered, and what I think it it really. Um, taught me is, you know, you need to have those foundations. And I think there are still newspapers out there that are really trying to teach people those skills. Um, If I remember correctly, fact check me on this internet world, um, they're still privately owned. Um, I think that it can be really tough when larger media companies own newspapers. Um, and I think that they people often blame the newspapers. But when your budget is consistently cut, when you... So that someone can buy the next yacht. Right. Um, it, it just means that journalists are working like crazy to make sure that they're doing the best work they can um, with incredible pressure. And a lot of times editors, you know, they hire fewer and fewer of them because they're more expensive. And you can hire a bunch of people that are in their 20s um, and then fire the person who's in their 50s because they're more expensive. And I think that that makes it tough for those newspaper jobs to exist. So uh, subscribe to a newspaper. Um, Which you know, one would you suggest? I, you know, very earnestly, I would say people should have a subscription to the Oregonian. I really, I, I'm adamant about that. I think um, if you're a Portlander, you know, love your local paper. I know that you might have issues with your local paper. Write letters to the editor. God, please write letters to the editor, but subscribe to your local paper. I would say read the New York Times. Um get the New York Times cooking newsletter. It's great. It's so well written and it's uh, really funny. I think they have a great food section. Um I would say the Washington Post is great. Um also I You're you, boy, you're pretty liberal. <laughs> I might be showing my no. true colors a little well, bit. Well, no, you're, you're the exact same things I, <laughs> yeah. I read, too. Right. So, Yeah. 
I appreciate oh, that. Oh, and the Globe. Read the Globe. The Globe. <laughs> why Why the Globe if um, someone's not interested in Boston In, in Boston, you'd be surprised. Um, there are some great digital content that comes out of the Globe that is more nationally focused. Um, the section I worked in, we had a lot of great writers that were mm, focused on the nation. We have great, we, I don't work there. Um, <laughs> they have a great travel writer. They have a great travel section. Um, and again, like, you know, that's a newspaper that covers actually um, U.S. politics really well. They have um, a Washington bureau. Why I, are they all on the East Coast? I don't know. I mean, to be fair, I I think that the benefit of the Globe is that they're what the longest standing national newspaper. So, nope, I'm sorry. Not true. Well, I don't know if it's national. Hartford Current. Hartford Current. You are from I Connecticut, only, aren't you? I only know that because I'm from, <laughs> from Connecticut. Connecticut. <laughs> That's gotta be fair. That was okay, the well, first major metropolitan. And, and there's a disqualifier on there. <laughs> I'm gonna, first. I'm gonna yeah. go ahead and fact check that. Excuse Please me. Please do. Give me I, I want to know, but there's What's a little the disqualifier. It's sure. like the first daily published. I don't know what it is, but I'd love to know what that is. Yeah, but. it's one of those. Um, yeah, and I think, but I really do think that um, you know we have some good papers over here. I, I don't want to say that I have like an East Coast bias because I really I'm. A, Lifelong Oregonian. You know, I read the Register Guard what, as a kid. What brought you to uh, BU? Or Boston College, I'm sorry. Or Boston University. Boston University, BU. Okay, I was right yes. first. Um, I went, actually, because uh, Julia Child founded the gastronomy program there. And um, I was accepted to a few schools. I, I knew I wanted to write for a food publication. Um, Boston is the home of America's Test Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I was looking at colleges in Boston. I, you know, I toured like Emerson and I think Northeastern as well. Um, but I noticed what I really liked about um, BU specifically is that it was a really diverse campus. You had a lot of people studying a lot of different things. And part of the reason I like to write is because I like to talk to people and share their interesting ideas and what they do. Um, and I also think um, the BU College of Communication is great. I had a great faculty there. Um, while I was there, I actually studied under David Carr before he died. Um, he was a columnist at the New York Times. Um, that opportunity, you know, I was one. I was a part of one class that got that opportunity before he passed away. And, you know, I think that shows, you know, how just the opportunities that you have there. And that's how I got connected with the Globe. Cheryl taught food writing classes at BU. I think Cheryl's my old editor, Cheryl Julian. Um, you know, it was just... I I just love that college and I think that I really if if you can afford to go to a journalism school you should go to a journalism school because just those skills that you build and especially if you're at a larger university the people you meet it's just great. So I love to be you for that reason. Um and had great opportunities there and I would not be here if it weren't for everyone there. So uh going through the the ages mm-hmm. Because I went to Syracuse University, which had like another you know, great journalism Newhouse, school, and I actually my Com One Hundred and One class was uh, we had guest speaker Walter Cronkite. So I'm aging myself, but on the other hand, that place was right. pretty incredible. Yeah. But so, uh, as I understand it, going back to my father's day, University of Missouri, mm-hmm. still great, great journalism, journalism school, right? So I just I'm just curious if they're yeah. still the same. Northwestern mm-hmm. is in that conversation. Any others that that yeah that you looked at um, or that you know of that are right. So I really was interested in um, Annenberg. I didn't get in, um, but Annenberg, uh, the communication school at um, USC, 
They have a really great program. Um, I think they do more television stuff. It's been a while since I've checked, but um, I really was interested in their program. Um, I like Northeastern a lot. I, I really, I think that they have a cool program because they have a built-in co-op. It takes five years to graduate, but you have a full year that you're spent in the field. So you get a ton of really great um, experience in the process there. Um, I applied to Emerson in Boston. If you don't want an integrated campus, it's fine. Um, but yeah, I would say Missouri is still great. Um, I have tons of really talented um, friends and colleagues who went to the Cronkite School at ASU. So I would also say that's a great opportunity if you are partial to Arizona. How do you know that? <laughs> How do I know that? That, yeah. that they're talented or that it's a good school? Oh, no, no, oh. no. I went to University of Arizona. Oh. So I thought you were I thought you were saying that I was partial uh, to Arizona. You meant you, like, you the greater the, you. The greater but audience. You, but yes. Yeah. Well, yes. there you go. And <laughs> that I might was, be that I shirt you're say, wearing. I was going to say, well, I actually had an Arizona hat on this morning, no. but I was going to say that I agree with you mm-hmm. that, I mean, every, it's, everything's, everybody has their own cups of tea, sure. but I, the larger campuses for mm-hmm. me, I went to tiny, mm-hmm. middle, and large, and for me, the large was, it was part of the great education yeah. that I got. Well, I don't know if my education was great, <laughs> but part of my great experience yeah. that I got. So, um I went to a little school in Ohio called Marietta College, and that was the bi- probably the biggest mistake I ever made in my life. But oh. then Syracuse and Arizona, I loved yeah. both of them, but the weather in Syracuse was just unbearable. <laughs> I mean, it was the worst. Yeah. So um, where do you tell your, where, before you started as editor, mm-hmm. where did you tell your friends who were coming to Portland when they asked you where should they go? Where did you tell them? So I. So this is a fact. This isn't going to get you in trouble. This is before you started at Eater. Yeah. Where did you? Where where did? Where so did you tell? I think I had a pretty good answer uh, for before I started at Eater, and it's because um, when I was a kid, I collected restaurant recommendations. So in those Bon Appetits I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. I would I had a, like a composition book, and I would write down restaurant recommendations. So I had like a page for Portland and a page for LA and oh a page God. for New York. I was just a nerd. They they, so. they absolutely <laughs> chose the right person for this job. I mean, no, it's so I, clear. It was just uh, it was I was a total nerd about it. So and I had like I don't know my old 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 website probably still has like maps I made for a few cities in the United States. Um, but I uh, I really liked, I, when I would ask, when someone would ask me where to go, I would usually recommend a few breakfasts, a few lunches, and a few dinners. Good. So for breakfast, I remember I would recommend uh, Blue Star Donuts. I really like Blue Star Donuts. Um, I would recommend, um, oh, Proud Mary before I started. And then I would recommend Milk Glass. I really like Milk Glass Market. I love that place. Yeah. Um, I'm forgetting a breakfast. What, I'm what about some of the big ones? For. And I never I never I prompt never, when I don't know the answer, yeah. but the taste, Tasty and Broder? Are yeah, those you know, you? surprisingly, I did not recommend those. And I think it was because I hate recommending places that make people wait in line. Um, but Tasty, you know, you don't wait in line anymore. So Well, plus Broder and Broder Southwest. The uh-huh. one in Southwest, man, it's beautiful yeah. and there's no line. So that try that someday. So there you go. Um, but yeah, I think those were usually my recommendations. Um, I'm also a, a small breakfast person person um which excludes quite a few places um yeah that, then you wouldn't necessarily be telling people tasty but on the other yeah. hand but i was in salem they have plenty they're, not of those. All, they're not all you yeah so. right um so what else oh for lunch um i would recommend hot yai i really love hot yai um for a sandwich i if, if you have like the the 
schools of sandwich. Um, I really liked uh, Lardo, so that was mm-hmm. the one I would recommend. Um, you have a favorite sandwich there? A uh, favorite sandwich? There. Uh, there, mortadella. Yeah. I really like, yeah. Um, I started buying mortadella, uh, just cold cuts that because of that. Yeah. And also, I like their banh mi. They have, yeah. Yeah, that thing is, whenever mm-hmm. I just want to kill her. Yeah, I like, I like best baguette for banh mi, um, but yeah, I get it. Uh, then Javiel and Roseville. Um and another lunch place. That's all right. That's enough. That's Dinner. funny. Let's go. Dinner. Han Oak. Immediately. Um, uh, Ox, I would recommend. Um, and I really, really still love uh, Little Bird and Le Pigeon. So those were usually kind of the three. And I tried to get a couple of cuisines in there. Oh, and a fairy ramen. Um, I love ramen. So I really like their place. And I think that no one orders right there. They always, they don't get the tantan men, the really thick you got that sesame and you got the ground. It's so delicious. And it's that tonkotsu so you can coat your spoon in, in broth when you stick it. That's that's the good stuff. So I think that uh, those would, were what I recommended and are probably still what I'd recommend. I, I add a few, but. Oh, you will see a few. Yeah. We're, we're just tune into Eater. <laughs> sure. But I appreciate that. And I didn't want to get you in any trouble. Yeah. That's why I uh, couched it as before <laughs> you fine. were. I'm going to get into trouble anyway. You know, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm a food writer. People have so many opinions. I'm <laughs> have you have you experienced any ire, ire yet oh, yeah. from anybody? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, of course, um, on Twitter, people send me emails. Um, have you, oh, okay. From restaurateurs? No, no full on anger. Okay. But some frustration. Um, and, you know, I think I, I say it's like my catchphrase. A critique is not a condemnation. If someone has a problem with something that I wrote, I will listen. I will think about it. I will really consider the growth that I might need in that process. And if I think that they are just somewhat sensitive, I might say, well, this is why I did what I did. Um, I'm hearing what you're saying. Um, and I really encourage you to you know, continue to reach out to me. And if you want to have larger conversations, we can, but this is why I chose to write the story this way. And I stand by it, you know? Um, but I often will take that stuff into account and think about it and change and grow from it. Um, I think everyone should behave that way. Um, but there was a point to me saying this and it was, yes, people, people have frustration with me. And I, you know, when people write me, I usually respond if they have a problem with something that I said. And I notice people immediately calm down once they realize I'm a human, you know? And then it's suddenly like, oh, I didn't expect you to, you know, I was angry and I just spewed anger and and you start to realize, oh, well, they were frustrated. This is why they were frustrated. A lot of times it's valid and you can sort of talk to them about it and they go, oh, okay. So, and also sometimes people are just gross and annoying on the internet and you just kind of Oh, really? Didn't I know. know that. that doesn't sound like the internet, right? So in 15 seconds or sure. maybe 30, because mm-hmm. we, I really, I love this interview. Yeah. I think you've been great. Um, but I want to just, uh, I want you to, do you have in mind mm-hmm. where you want to be in 10 years mm-hmm. and wh- what's that vision for you? Well, honestly, um, I love editing. I love sort of being the idea person and figuring out how I want to structure a section. So either editing a food section at a larger national site or staying here but building the site to the stage that I really wanted to 10 be. years at Eater. That would be a long, I know. Compared long to ten- most people, there's, they <laughs> don't like to stay here that long. But I, I love Eater when I, my boyfriend likes to say on our first date, he said, where do you want to, what's your dream job? And I said, I'm working at Eater. 
And I, I think I stand by that. I, I really believe in our brand and I love our national site. I really love what we can do here. So I just want to grow our site as much as we can before I feel like I can walk away from it. If well, I do. Well, I'm going to say this and I wouldn't say this. I think <laughs> anybody who listens to this podcast, no, I wouldn't say it unless yeah. I meant it. Good for Eater. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge props to Eater for hiring you. And good for all of us. <laughs> so I appreciate that you're going to be out there doing a lot of research that we need. And, thank you. Uh, and thank you for coming. And we talked about this is not going to be your only visit here. So, um, <laughs> yeah. so we hope you come back. And, and we, there's a lot more about your life that we want to know. Too, yeah, absolutely. Um, that that forms your uh, the experience that allows you to do what you're doing well. So, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you. And also, I will suggest that people tune in and look for our first soundbite with uh, with Brooke on what's exciting her in Portland and also what she's looking forward to opening in the next few months, which would be from May first on. So, take a look at that or find that on uh, on our website. Thanks, Brooke. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. 